Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Anthony Pinn about his journey from growing up in the African American church to being a leading voice of humanism. Dr. Anthony Pinn is Professor of Religious Studies and Director of Research at the Institute for Humanist Studies at Rice University. He was featured in the book version of A Better Life. I asked him about his experience growing up in a deeply religious environment in Buffalo, New York. I uh, grew up in Buffalo, New York, and uh, my mother's side of the family was involved in the uh, Baptist Church, but also the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So I spent my young years in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest black church in the United States, uh, doing the stuff that kids uh, in the church do, you know, Sunday school, choir, acolyte, um, and with time, ministry. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly, uh, fairly straightforward. Um, went to school within the inner city, went to a um, after the first few years in a neighborhood school, Buffalo, New York, developed a citywide program for what uh, they labeled gifted kids. So I moved into that program and attended a school outside of my uh, neighborhood in a predominantly white area and was there and um, continued uh, through ninth grade in that and decided at that point based on my interest in ministry and my evangelical leanings that I needed to be in an institution that uh, that involved similar goals and to be around the like-minded. So I enrolled in a private school run by a conservative Baptist church outside of the city. It was a feeder program for institutions like Bob Jones University. And what was that experience like? You know, uh, growing up in the black church, um, there are lots of things the churches got wrong, but uh, my church was fairly progressive on issues of race, Mm -hmm. Uh, really backwards theologically and in terms of ethics with respect to every other form of injustice, but on point in terms of race. At this Southern Baptist school, the amount of religiously justified racism I encountered was kind of staggering to me, Hmm. right? I knew racism existed, but the way Hmm. it was packaged within that environment was just odd. And and it was shocking to you at the time as well to see that represented religiously? The, The way it was carried out, right? So it was my first encounter really with both, um, explicit and implicit bias. Mm-hmm. So come to find out, um, when I enrolled, the school held a meeting for teachers and parents so they could basically uh, get adjusted to the idea of the first black student. Wow. Um, during that first year, we're electing class officers. It's a fairly small school, but we're electing class officers and I'm nominated for vice president. The homeroom teacher pulls me into the hallway and says, you know, this is a really big responsibility. And and these students are demonstrating that they they trust you and they like you. And I'm thinking, are you going to have this conversation with every officer? But it was just me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Bob Jones University is not too keen on black people. Right. And so 
there were all sorts of issues there, issues with respect to interracial dating, et cetera. And so all of that got kind of funneled through this uh, school and its, its social understandings. Did that have any effect on your religiosity at that point? Or did you kind of separate the the, the racism and injustice you were seeing at the school um, from the religiosity part of it? Well, it's it's rather odd, right? So on one level, I, I bracketed this, that my, my religious encounters had to do with what was taking place in my home church. And this is where I went to school. It was where I played soccer and basketball. And those were different entities. But as a young Christian who had a rather conservative understanding what Jesus Christ requires, the idea that I was on some level being persecuted spoke to me of my righteousness. Right? Those who are righteous, the devil torments. And so on some level, I saw this oddly as an indication that I must be doing something right. So how did you proceed? How did you make it through that experience? Uh, by centering on home and church, um, still committed to ministry. and But again, this was a rather conservative institution. So I had a hard time getting teachers to write letters of recommendation for secular institutions. Right? I was not really interested in going to Bob Jones or Pensacola or Wheaton or Liberty Bat, any of those, right? where most of my, my uh, colleagues were going. I wanted to go to a major institution, a secular institution. Mm-hmm. Teachers were not very pleased with that, right? Administrators were not very pleased with that. And so it was a struggle getting letters. But ultimately, I decided to go to Columbia in part because the minister of my church was being transferred to a rather large church in Brooklyn. I thought this was a sign from the Lord, right? I'm getting, I get into Columbia, this minister is leaving. This is the Lord saying, continue your ministry in New York. And so you moved down to the city. Moved to the city. So what was that experience like? What year was that, just to start out? And that was 82. 82. Okay, so the city was very different back then. Very, very different. And this church um, is in Bedford-Stuyvesant, but Bedford-Stuyvesant, 1982. Um, so, right, it's a, communi- a community that in significant ways is being decimated by crack cocaine, economic neglect, it's it's problematic. It's where death is real. Um, and, and so that was a bit of a struggle, right? And and on the on the university campus, uh, it, I, I quickly recognized that critical thinking skills have been wiped away, right? That in my high school, you, you were rewarded for just giving back what you were told, memorizing scripture and in other classes, just giving back what you were told. But critical thinking, no. So I had to learn how to think again. I had to learn how to ask questions. I I had to learn how to be engaged, to really read a text that reading the Bible had ruined my ability to read because you don't approach that critically. You just absorb it. The Bible says it, so it must be true, right? No critical engagement. And I'm taking classes in which the Bible is understood as just literature and not necessarily very good literature. And, And so everything that was sacred and dear to me, uh, everything that had to be treated seriously under the penalty of hellfire was brought into question. So it threw me for a loop. And I'm meeting people who are involved in religious traditions I knew very little about, and they weren't afraid of hellfire. And it was just, it was throwing me off. The religious world was 
really big and I'm meeting people who didn't believe at all, who tended to treat me better than some of the church people. Wow. So it's kind of freaking me out. And in church, you know, I'm one of the youth ministers and I'm dealing with young people who are suffering for whom a long life is not a given. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have anything to say that gave me comfort. So I knew I couldn't be giving them comfort. Right, that I was better at answering the questions they weren't asking than actually addressing the concerns and the anxieties they faced. And was it something that hit you right away, or did it take a while, kind of as you settled in? It took a little while because that first year I'm just learning New York. Right, it's a city mm -hmm. of sin, and I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't have liked it as much as I did. But I loved New York, and it remains my favorite city in the United States. Mm -hmm. It also, but it, it was a very different place than Buffalo, New York, just in terms of city life, but very different religious and theological sensibilities at work in the city. And so it took me a little while to kind of venture off campus and, and see what was happening in Harlem and see what was happening in lower Manhattan to get a sense of a much larger world. But it was creating a kind of religious and social dissonance for me. Were you living up by Columbia University at that time? Yeah, I, I lived on, on campus all four years. But living off campus meant um, being as far uptown as I think was 122nd in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, living for me outside of that first year really didn't involve just the main campus. It was housing owned by the school, but kind of nestled in the community. And you were also traveling to Brooklyn a lot because that's where your church was, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in, in, in Brooklyn because I was one of the youth ministers, which meant you know obligations beyond Saturday and Sunday. Most of my friends were associated with the church and they lived in Brooklyn. And for people who don't know, that's quite a long subway ride, too. Yeah, the number one to the A. Uh, and mm -hmm. I would get off, well, Chris, you know the area. I would get off at Boys and Girls, the subway stop right near there, mm -hmm. and uh, walk to the church. It was about a 10, 15-minute walk from there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we're not talking about a church that was 10, 15 minutes away from my, my uh, room. It was a bit of a hike. How often did you go to the church? I'd say on average I was there at, at least three or four times a week. And once I had work study, um, it wasn't long before I was doing my work study at the church working with young people. So I was there a lot. It was in significant ways a major portion of my life. So this was around the same time that you really started to kind of doubt your faith at that point, right? I was, it, my faith was changing. I went from being this evangelical fundamentalist in terms of theological outlook uh, to being much more flexible and, and much more progressive, right? So over the course of my four years in New York, I was shifting away from hellfire and heaven to it's really all about how you treat people. That's the message of Christ. How do you treat people? How do you live in the world? And bracketing conversation about, well, if you die now, do you go to heaven or hell? Just how are you living on earth? So I was mm -hmm. moving away from a rather strict um, and otherworldly sense of religion to a sense of the ministry of Christ being embedded 
in the life of people. So I was still interested in ministry, but what how I understood ministry was radically changing. And I knew that I had better questions than I had answers, but I'm a minister in a church and people want answers. They don't want questions. Monday through Saturday poses enough for them in terms of questions. They want to come to church on Sunday, get answers. And I didn't have any. And the church was very conservative still. It wasn't changing along with you. No, I was changing. I mean, again, progressive with respect to issues of race, but rather conservative with respect to everything else. Did you feel like you had to find another church at that point? I I needed to leave New York. I, I was still committed to the AME church and committed to ministry, but I needed to be somewhere where I could think and ask questions and kind of figure out what ministry was going to mean for me. And so I left New York and moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts to attend Harvard. And as a Master of Divinity uh, student, that's the professional degree for ministry. I had to do field education. And so I decided to work in a church in uh, Roxbury. And this was Roxbury 1986, so a bit rougher than Roxbury 2018. Hmm. And, And again, I'm being slapped in the face by the predicament that young people faced. Right. Death was all around them. They did not assume a long life. And I had nothing to say that was really helpful. And it reached a point for me as I moved through the MDiv into the Ph.D. program that I had to make a choice. I could be a custodian of the tradition or I could leave and do a work that was more meaningful. Hmm. So I contacted the minister and contacted the bishop and surrendered ordination and left the church. Remained interested in the study of religion because this was a cultural force that for the length of human history had influenced and informed how people thought and what they did. And I I needed to understand that. I needed to understand what religion is and what it does and how it operates, how it maneuvers. I needed to understand that. And intellectually, religion still intrigued me. I was just no longer a believer. And was that a difficult process once you finally kind of accepted that you didn't believe? Did you have a lot of worries about how people would treat you, how your family would think about you having left the faith? No, the difficult part was just intellectually working through all of this. But I did not care whether I lost family or friends. I I had to be true to what I thought and what I believed. I wasn't going to be a hypocrite in order to maintain family ties and keep a big group of friends. So if they didn't like me, didn't care for me afterwards, whatever, didn't matter to me. Did that happen? Did you lose family and friends over this? I lost some friends, but my family, for the most part, you know, they were, okay, this is Tony. My mother said to me, You know, I hope you change your mind. I hope you come back. But if you don't, you're my blood, you're my son, and I will always love you. What more did I need? That's surprisingly refreshing from many of the stories I've heard from other people. Most of the pushback for me has come from people within the academy as opposed to family and friends. I'm still involved in the study of religion. That is my academic area. And I get a lot of resistance, a lot of animosity from folks who believe that you have to believe in order to study this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's that's been uh, more trying than family and friends. So did you feel like it was 
a weight that it can lift it off your shoulders at that point. So when, once you realized you could, you didn't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You could still, uh, you know, study religion, but you left the faith part of it personally. Well, it, it was freeing in that it gave me opportunity to think differently about what religion is and how it functions. But what was most liberating about that was now I had the tools necessary to unpack and explore and recover a long history and tradition of black disbelief, mm-hmm. right? So more than just rethinking religion, what was really energizing for me was the opportunity to find other black humanists and free thinkers and atheists throughout the history of the United States. That was really, really energizing. And you hadn't known any of that beforehand, right? No, I couldn't. You know, this was a population I wouldn't want to be in conversation with, right? I mean, these are folks who have been turned over in biblical terms had been turned over to a reprobate mind. There was no hope for them. Why Why associate with them? So no, it wasn't anything I really knew about. And so as an academic, as an academic who didn't believe, here was an opportunity to recover a portion of African-American history and the history of the United States thought within the United States that had been underappreciated and underexplored. What's something that surprised you the most uh, during that discovery period? There are lots of us. We are legion. And some of the greatest minds within the African-American community over the course of the years have held to humanist principles. Whether they use that term or not, their thinking and their doing reflects humanist principles. People like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Nala Larson, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, right? Some of the huge figures of American and African-American letters were operating based upon humanist principles. It's something, you know, I think most people today, I don't even know. No, that. no. In part because it's, it's sloppy thinking. So I'll give you an example. James Weldon Johnson, tremendous figure, right? He, he, um, he does this tremendous study of the black sermonic style, mm-hmm. right? But for him, what he's exploring is a mechanism of communication, a kind of poetic mechanism of communication. He's not exploring the sermonic style because he's a Christian. He says in his, in his autobiographical work that he surrendered belief in God as a college student. Hmm. So he was understanding and exploring this, this style of preaching for its cultural interests not because of the theologies these folks were preaching, right? But people were getting confused. Talk about the church, you must belong, right? W.E.B. Du Bois talks about the church, so he must be a churchman. A. Philip Randolph has a church membership, so he must be a believer. No, he, he joined the church like you join a union. You had been, at least, a minister. So once you lost your faith, how did you, you, you wanted to continue kind of the ministry part of it, but without the relig- without the, the faith part? How did you kind of square your lack of faith with kind of what you were doing in kind yeah. of the day-to-day work? Well, I gave up ministry, so I stopped working in the church. And if I needed to talk in terms of ministry, the teaching profession, being a professor was my new ministry, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It was my vocation. 
And I'd stepped away from the church. I only engaged the church as a matter of intellectual curiosity. I wrote about churches. I critiqued and analyzed them, but I did not believe and I did not belong. And so I, I, I took that perspective, that posture towards the work to Minnesota, where I had my first teaching position at McAllister College. And McAllister was great in that they gave me the freedom to teach whatever I wanted. It wasn't until the Houston, uh, not Houston, the um, Star Tribune newspaper did a profile piece on me one Saturday. And in it, it was mentioned that, you know, I, I don't believe in God and I teach religious studies. And people were in an uproar about it. Right? Minnesota nice was lost. People were people got hot about this. People wanted me fired. They didn't want their children taking courses with me. All this sort of nastiness because I didn't believe. But the school was supportive. And the president contacted me and said, you know, there's absolutely nothing to worry about because I, I was going through my second year review. Mm -hmm. And for folks who don't know the academy, that second year review is, do you keep your job or not? Conversation based upon what you've produced, how well you've taught, what kind of service you provide to an institution. So I'm wrestling with those sorts of issues with people wanting me fired. And the president said not to worry about it, that the school believed and would always believe in freedom of speech. And so I had academic freedom to say what I believed and without penalty, and I shouldn't worry. Did you feel any parallels between your work in the ministry and then when you came a professor? Did you use many of the same skills that you had been using as a minister when you became a professor? I think there are a couple of skills that transferred. Or I, I won't even call them skills. A couple of tendencies, a couple of stylistic tendencies that continue. So the the rhythm of my speaking when I'm lecturing, right, is very similar to the rhythm of my speaking when I was preaching. Mm -hmm. uh, my use of words, my effort to kind of paint pictures, is a holdover from my years in church ministry. My effort to get a sense of why people think what they think, right? Kind of to deal with the full person as they encounter these intellectual treasures, right? Kind of deal with the whole person as they're reading Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. This sort of thing is a stylistic holdover. So you, in a way, in a sense, you, you moved laterally over. You didn't really have to lose or change that much. Uh, it was just kind of the role that was different at that point. Well, there were, there were certain things that I gave up, but overall, there, there are stylistic elements that, that remained. Um, but being in the academy and being in the church are radically different things. And so mm -hmm. there were, there were uh, assumptions and tendencies I, I needed to surrender, right? So, for example, the AME church is based upon the itinerant itinerant ministry, so ministers travel, you move from church to church. Mm -hmm. The idea being you don't stay in one church for the length of your career, and you are assigned to a church by bishops. Mm -hmm. That's not how tenure and promotion works within the academy. Mm -hmm. right. right. So just what it means to have a job and job security and the folks with whom you work, all of these sorts of dynamics radically different. Right. But one of the benefits for me was I wasn't moving from having pastored a church, being fully into that system, into the academy. Right? I was a youth minister. 
without some of these responsibilities, without some of these contacts and obligations, who then moved into the academy. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit easier, you would say, for you in that Yeah, capacity. I think an easier transition than it, it might have been otherwise. Is there anything that you miss about religious life or about church that you didn't get in a secular way after leaving? There are a couple of things that I, I'd put it differently. I'd say there are a couple of things that humanists ought to recognize as a challenge to be addressed. Mm -hmm. That one... Traditional religious communities have an appreciation for the ritualization of life that we tend to lack. Mm -hmm. We have surrendered ritual to theists, and we need to do a better job of developing ways to ritualize the significant moments of life, mm -hmm. right? So someone encounters a death in the family, to know that this is a part of the cycle of life, it's a biological function, is insufficient, right? So I think, I think, Theists tend to do ritual better than, than we do. And I think theists also have a deeper appreciation for construction of community than we do. I think whether their rhetoric is harsh or not, whether they are evangelical and unbending in terms of social issues, they understand that the church has to be a soft place to land for the like-minded. And we don't always get that. There have been some attempts to create secular rituals and secular community, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Why do you think there has been some pushback from many in the secular community to establishing those things within our own community? I think there are a couple of problems here. One, we just assume that only traditionally religious people quest meaning and use ritual structures that for I think for too many non-believers, the assumption is to introduce ritual is to leave the door open for religion. Mm -hmm. And I think secondly, we've often failed because our ritual structures still reflect a kind of theistic orientation. So take, for example, Sunday assembly, Pentecostalism for atheists, right? That the very structure of it resembles time on Sunday in a traditional theistic church. Mm -hmm. That I, I, What I'm getting at is this. I don't think non-believers, I don't think humanists, atheists, uh, free thinkers, etc., have developed unique modes of being together. We're just copying what the religious have done. And that won't work. We're, we're ripping God out of it as if that's sufficient. Mm -hmm. We need to come up with with our own vocabulary and grammar of wonder. We need to come up with our own structuring of time together that doesn't depend on religious communities, but really entails something that is uniquely us and organic to our philosophy of life. Have you seen any examples of that sprouting up? No, but I think it is the challenge. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting um, critique of a lot of those um, organizations like Sunday Assembly or Oasis. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to many of them around the country, and uh, some of them are doing very well. Um, some of them aren't. And uh, a lot of that is geographic, right? So in places yeah. that are very religious, um, where that kind of language and that structure uh, is the norm, people, I think, feel a lot more comfortable with that yeah. kind of 
structure. But in many other places, New York, for example, um, it hasn't worked very well at all. No. And my question again is, what is unique about that time together? Right. If we put it on mute and people couldn't hear what was being said, could they confuse that time together for a traditional Baptist church service? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we need something that is uniquely us. Right. And until we do that, we are still bending to religion and we're just doing it by negation. But it's still a matter of our self-understanding being determined by religion. Mm-hmm. Now it's just by negation. We understand ourselves over against religion. But that still centers theism, still centers religion. We need something that is uniquely us. There have been so many conversations over the past few years about diversity within the atheist community and the non-theist community. Um, and when you lost your faith, when you not only lost your faith, but then decided to kind of be a part of this larger atheist secular community, did you feel welcomed as an African-American or did you find there was um, some opposition to your participation in the community? I felt welcomed by some and not by others, right? There was, a, I, I encountered a great deal of ignorance mm-hmm. um, concerning African-Americans, for example, that was mm-hmm. off-putting, a lot of ignorance and, and ignorance coming from people who prided themselves on being reasonable and logical. But yet when it came to so-called racial minorities, they held to stereotypes. Can you give some examples of the kind of things you encountered? Well, the idea that there aren't more African-Americans involved because this philosophy of life is very intellectual and and it requires hard thinking. There's nothing really that's emotional about it or effective. Wow. Come on. Wow. I mean, this is just bizarre. Or social Darwinism run amok, well, that other populations haven't prospered because those who have triumphed are just better. Just really piss poor thinking when it came to issues of of race what was that i mean i can just imagine how how awkward that would be what did you do in those situations well uh, my attitude was clearly one can be a humanist and a racist one can be a humanist and a bigot one can be a humanist and a sexist right the assumption that the the faulty assumption that if you leave religion behind you leave all of these social issues behind is just ridiculous. And so it was clear that, yeah, that humanism is not a prophylactic against stupidity, that one can be a humanist and still embrace some rather bizarre and problematic thinking concerning race, gender, class, et cetera. So I thought, okay, well, let me, I'm I'm gonna do my own thing and and continue to work to uncover this larger community of African-American non-believers that I know exist and and I'll deal with these others when and how I need to. Have you seen improvement in the community since you joined? Or what, what has that been like? I've, I've seen uh, an increased openness to the conversation. But if you look at these organizations, there isn't tremendous improvement. And right, let's just look at the leadership in the major organizations. Mm-hmm. What about the leadership within the major organizations would suggest this sort of diversity? Right. Or even if we think in terms of programming, you're more likely to find so-called racial minorities giving talks on race and then the real 
heady stuff, as they might want to understand it, being done by the usual suspects. So even within the context of programming, we're often ghettoized. Mm -hmm. You talk about the race. You talk about race issues. But until organizational structure changes to reflect a deep desire for diversity, it'll have the same look. Right, right. And you, you mentioned, you know, going off and doing your own thing and you went down to uh, Houston to mm -hmm. teach at Rice. Yeah. And you've been there for a number of years, right? How many years? I think it's 15 years now. So I guess I'm a Texan. <laughs> I guess so. How do you like it down there? I, Houston grew on me, uh -huh. right? It was a bit different that uh, in that it is so... It's so big and car dependent. My first two years here, I didn't have a car with me. And getting around was just extremely difficult. Um, weather extremes, not really a problem, right? I'd gone from extreme winter in Minnesota to extreme summer here. Okay, that, that can be adjusted to. But it's a, an extremely diverse and cosmopolitan city. There is a lot going on in Houston. And I tell you this that I have not had the problems regarding my personal stance, my humanism, not had the problems here that I had in Minnesota. No one has wanted me fired here for being a humanist. No one has told me, my parents don't want me to take your classes because you, you, you don't believe in God. And I get invitations from churches to come and talk about what I believe. Wow, that's quite a change, <laughs> quite a change. And especially Houston means such a big city and such a diverse city. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean Houston has a lot to offer. Except, you know, like you like you mentioned the summers there are, are pretty <laughs> pretty hot. <laughs> pretty humid. Yeah, but you reach a point of misery where it really doesn't make a difference, right? So you reach a point of misery in New York, it hits 90 and it's 85% humidity. Does it really make a difference if it's 95 and 90% humidity? You're you're just staying inside. Yeah, true. That's a good point. That's you know, point. or in Minnesota, when it's it's 30 below without the wind chill factor, you just stay inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you make those sorts of adjustments here. It, when I lived in Minnesota, my rule was I would go for a run as long as it was above zero. Mm -hmm. And in Houston, my my rule is I will go for a run as long as it's below 95. <laughs> getting the extremes on either end there you go yeah. yeah so what do you like the most about your role as a professor at rice the the opportunity to just wrestle with questions and the opportunity to help students equip them equip themselves with a toolkit so to speak that will allow them to interrogate and transform their world mm. i mean that this is wonderful i mean it's a great gig and you have a beautiful campus down there. I've been down there. It's gorgeous. And it's really to have that space to be able to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's such an incredible opportunity. And Rice on that level has been very kind that I was asked to come here and I could do whatever I wanted. And for the most part, Rice has been true to that. I, I can teach what I want and um, my, my center, we, we do the kind of programming that we think is vital. We engage the larger Houston community in ways we think make sense, that it's, it's been a good situation. And what are your passions outside of academia? 
How do you spend your, your free time? Oh, well, um, outside of exercise, I'm, I'm a big movie fan. I love travel. And so the travel uh, takes me away from uh, Houston, from campus quite often. But I love travel, just seeing new places, experiencing new cultures, eating new foods. Where are some of the most exciting places that you've been? Oh, well, I, well I'll tell you some of the places that really get me excited. Um, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, Singapore. I, I spend a lot of time in Germany. I have good friends there um, who are also colleagues and just opportunity to kind of explore the culture and explore ideas is really fascinating. I love it. I spend a lot of time in London uh, for very similar reasons. But mm-hmm. I think some of my favorite places are Hong Kong and, and Singapore. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so amazing, you know, embracing humanism and, and, and you know, to go from where you grew up in the church to where you are today. I mean, it's such a shift, but you're still, you know, the same person. And to kind of experience that spectrum along the way, um, it's just incredible. I mean, do you ever think back and take a moment to think kind of the journey that you've you've been on? I mean, it's because from the outside, at least, it's it seems like such an incredible experience you've had. It's you know, I don't spend a lot of time doing that, but it's it's yeah, my life has involved huge changes. I, I turned 54 yesterday and, you know, I spent the first, what, 25, 26 years deeply committed to rather conservative theological attitudes and then this second half kind of free of of those and able to move through the world in very different ways and i'm grateful for the people i've i've encountered along the way who kind of helped me refine my thinking and my doing your birthday was yesterday yeah happy birthday well thank you And just to uh, wrap us up, what are your goals for the future moving forward? To do more and better work. That's very short and succinct. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tony, for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash the atheist book. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.